Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Samuel, the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7. As mentioned on Church Social this past week for the congregation, uh, we, are hope to, we are returning this morning to a sermon series in 2 Chronicles, chapter 21, where we read about King Jehoram and the background to much of what goes on with the kings lies in 2 Samuel 7. So let's read the whole chapter together, and I want to draw your attention to the word house. The word house is used in two different ways throughout chapter 7, and we will see how that figures into the message in 2 Chronicles 21. So just keep your eye on house. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be forever established. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind 
O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I invite you to turn with me to Second Chronicles 21. We don't have time to read the uh, kingship of Jehoshaphat, which is the previous four chapters, but I'll be referring back to that story. Hopefully you had time to read it during the week, if not, perhaps later today. But we're going to pick up the story at chapter 21, verse 1. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever." In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. 
At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom, and, you, and also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than you, behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. That's as far as our text will go. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we turn back to Second Chronicles this morning, we are entering into a very dark period in the history of God's people. Two previous kings of Judah, Asa and Jehoshaphat, while they certainly had their sins and shortcomings, yet overall they did much good in their reigns. But now we come to Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, and not a single good thing is said about this man. The same is true for the next king, Amaziah, as well as the ruler after that, Queen Athaliah. The three of them carried on in a straight line a, a, a rule or a reign of wickedness. So for the next 16 years or so, evil and darkness is on the throne. Evil and darkness is reigning over the church. That's what Judah is, the church of God. We want to ask, what happened? How did we get here? We were just in Jehoshaphat's time in a good situation. How did we get here? How could someone born in the house of David, David, the man after God's own heart, how could someone born in that house become a man after the devil's own heart? Well, we hope to find out together as I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme. The Lord mercifully preserves the house of David. 
we'll see two things, the demonic blending that was going on and then the divine purging that took place. Well, after Jehoshaphat dies, then his oldest son is appointed as king. And right away in the beginning of our chapter, we see a completely different impulse in this man's heart compared to his father. Whereas Father Jehoshaphat began his kingship by walking in the ways of his father David, he even sent out teachers of the law, we read in chapter 17, so that the, the people of God would be renewed in their understanding of God's ways. Well, from the get-go, Jehoram does the opposite. He abandons the ways of David and immediately breaks the law of God in, in a heinous crime. Verse 4, when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Father Jehoshaphat taught the people the way of life, but King Jehoram models and pursues the way of death. He murders his blood brothers and some of the princes in order to eliminate any competition to his power. It's a power grab. What is that, brothers and sisters, but a pure act of evil, a demonic act by Jehoram? And the chronicler gives us some commentary and a reason why this particular son of Jehoshaphat should act so wickedly, verse 6, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Jehoram imitated not the behavior of the kings of Judah, his fathers Jehoshaphat and Asa and David, but he imitated rather the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel. And notice how the author becomes very specific as to the model he's using as the house of Ahab had done. I want you to notice the word house. We came across that word in 2 Samuel 7 quite a bit where the Lord gives this promise out of the blue, so to speak, to David that he would build David a house, meaning not a physical structure but a family line. A family line of kings, said the Lord, that will eventually bring a single son of David to reign forever over God's people. That's the house that God will build for David. The house of David, the man after God's own heart, was to have the eternal honor of shepherding God's people in that good and godly way according to the law for the flourishing of God's people he was to lead them to walk closely and humbly and joyfully with their covenant God. But now we read in our text that another house is running interference, a totally different house, an evil house, the house of Ahab. Somehow, the house of Ahab is effectively running things in the house of David, perpetrating evil left, right, and center. Well, what do we know about Ahab and his house? We've run into him before when we dealt with the reign of Jehoshaphat. He ruled the northern kingdom when Jehoshaphat was ruling the southern kingdom. So he's a generation above Jehoram. And talk about demonic. King Ahab, he was evil, 
in his pursuit of Baal worship, and he had a wife, Jezebel, who was worse. Jezebel was known for murdering the prophets of God. It was that same Jezebel who later framed Naboth, the neighbor of Ahab, and had him murdered just so Ahab could take over his vineyard. This king Ahab was, was the king who had been confronted so mightily by the prophet Elijah. Think of the, the three years of drought that Elijah had prayed for and which God sent. Think of the later showdown on Mount Carmel between the 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah himself, a single prophet. Remember that? Where, where the Lord sent down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice that Elijah was offering, proving once again that only he is, in fact, the true living God. Ahab had been confronted by the, the power of God through Elijah. He was witness to it all, but instead of repenting, Ahab found ways to blame Elijah for Israel's trouble. And Jehoshaphat, for his part, his biggest sin, and we've seen that he had some sins, but his biggest sin was making an alliance with this house of Ahab to the north, befriending Ahab and even joining with him in a fruitless and costly war. In fact, we read in chapter 18, verse 1, Jehoshaphat's friendship with Ahab and Jezebel was so tight that he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. That's where you need a mic drop. He made a marriage alliance with Ahab. That's Jehoram. We see that in verse 6 of our text. And Jehoram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done for, here comes the reason, the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The reason given us by the Holy Spirit for Jehoram's evil conduct is his marriage to the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, whose name we'll find out in the next chapter is Athaliah. And when you get to the next chapter, you can't hardly believe what Athaliah will do. She's going to murder her own grandkids so that she can be queen. This Athaliah, wife of Jehoram, was a chip off the old block. The evil of both Jezebel and Ahab was combined in her, it seemed. Jehoshaphat's idea a generation earlier to marry off one of his sons to one of Ahab's daughters, that is now coming back to haunt the house of, Ahab, uh, the house of David. We've got the house of Ahab running the house of David. Do you see, brothers and sisters, just how dangerous it is to marry someone whose heart is not devoted to the Lord God? We have to remember there is no neutral ground anywhere. Every human heart serves someone. Either you know, love, and serve the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, or you serve some other God, be it yourself, be it another person, 
or an idea or science or a god of the false religions of this world. There are only two ways to live. Either we live in devotion to the one true God or we live in devotion to sin. There is no other alternative. We sang it in Psalm 1, which starts the, the whole Psalter with the, this choice of the two ways. Either you love God's law with all your heart or you sit with the scoffers and hang around with the evildoers who care nothing for God's law. Think about it, brothers and sisters. If you form a deep bond of love with someone who does not serve the same God you serve, the living God, with someone who does not confess himself or herself to be a sinner and Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, you develop a bond of love with that person, what does that say about your devotion to the God above? And where will it lead? The example of our text and the instruction of the whole Bible says developing that kind of bond of love leads to your hurt, if not to your destruction. And so I want to speak a word to my single brothers and sisters for a moment, especially the young adults who will be seeking, if they're not already, a marriage partner. A marriage partner is a great blessing from God. Seek such a marriage partner among the people of God. Don't look outside to the non-Christians. Find someone who is one with you in faith, with whom you can walk together in godliness, assisting each other. You know, there are times when a, a friendship with an unbeliever becomes an attraction, and the attraction grows. Be ever so very careful brothers and sisters. Be cautious. Guard your heart. Don't give your heart to that person until that person has given their heart to the Lord. If that person is interested in the Christian faith, then let that person be taught. Let that person learn. And if true faith develops and that person becomes a, a living member of the church, then let that friendship blossom into something more, if the Lord should will. But if that person should not come to faith, should not come to love the Lord Jesus Christ from the bottom of their heart, then let that person go. Believers and unbelievers do not belong together in marriage. Now, Jehoram, of course, is responsible for his own actions. We're not going to blame Athaliah for his decisions. He should have resisted the influence of his wife, but he did not. The marriage of the house of David with the house of Ahab, that was a demonic blending, an unholy alliance that had horrible consequences. One consequence we've seen is the murder of Jehoram's brothers. The other consequence is mentioned in verse 11. Moreover, Jehoram made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. He built high places. What's a high place? Well, these were literally sites on, the, on or near the top of hills or, or the mountains in that country where formerly the Canaanites used to 
worship their gods. You see, it was a pagan thing and the pagans' mindset, if you wanted to influence the gods, which is what they wanted to do, then you did everything you could to get close to the gods. And they thought that by going high up on the mountain ridges or hills, they could get a little closer to the gods and have their ear a little bit more. Usually they also had a, a cluster of trees. Trees were thought to be part of the sacred rituals. They would set up altars in these high places, and they would perform there their, their various pagan rituals. Earlier, the Lord had commanded the Israelites to destroy not only the Canaanites and not only their idols, but also specifically their high places. So going to the high places was a first commandment issue. That, that people would worship the, the false gods there. This was against that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what King Jehoram is putting forward. He, he, he's building these pagan shrines. He's urging his people to come to the high places to sacrifice to the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the Molechs and no doubt other false gods, just like Ahab had done in the north. Verse 11 says that Jehoram led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom. That's a metaphor for spiritual adultery. Judah was the church. Judah was the people of God, and an image for the people of God is the bride of God. Any devotion of the bride to another husband, to another so-called God, that was considered spiritual prostitution. That's why we find the word whoredom here, prostitution, fornication. This is something the prophets regularly warned against. And now here is this son of David leading the charge, rejecting Yahweh and embracing pagan worship in full. Can you imagine? The king telling his people, worship the false gods. It'd be like me standing on the pulpit telling you and modeling for you to go out and worship Allah or the great spirit or Krishna or, or the God of human science. For a servant of God to do that, just imagine, because the king was a servant of God. How awful, how shameful, how hurtful to God and damaging for the people. The house of David has sunk to a new low. They have totally abandoned their covenant God, and by rights, God should bring down upon them all the covenant curses and wipe out the line of David. That's what they deserved. He'd done it to Ahab in the north, or he will do very shortly. Yet we read something else, verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Do you hear the, the pure gospel in that, brothers and sisters, the, the, the pure grace and mercy of God toward this very undeserving house of David? We read all about it in 2 Samuel 7 where the Lord had promised David that he would build him a house, that he would raise up offspring to David to, to reign over David's kingdom, over Israel forever. And, and God had said there, 
it, even if David's sons committed sin, the Lord would, would do this unconditionally. Here's His promise, His unconditional promise, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. You remember what happened to Saul, right? Saul was anointed king, but Saul deserted the Lord, and the Lord took the kingship away from Saul and destroyed the house of Saul. Now, the Lord is saying to David, even if your sons rebel against me, I won't destroy your house. You would deserve to have your house destroyed, but I won't do it. Isn't that utterly amazing? You can hear the amazement in David's response, which we read. He is stunned by the grace of God extended to him for David knew his own sinful heart. And he knew that sinners would be born to him. And yet he hears the Lord promise to build an everlasting house for David despite sinners on his throne, despite wickedness coming forth from his line, despite even the demonic blending with the house of Ahab. It's that unconditional promise of the Lord that kept a lamp burning in David's house. That's the metaphor used in our text. The lamp metaphor refers to life or existence. Snuff out a physical lamp, and of course, the light goes out. It becomes dark snuff out the sons of David, and the line of David comes to an end. It goes dark. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to keep a lamp burning for David. I promise to do that. I will open the way for my son to come, that ultimate son of David, and be a light, not just for David and Jerusalem, but a light for the whole world, a world which that son will one day purge from evil. That purging comes out in the remainder of our text. For as much as the Lord keeps watch over His unconditional promise, He also keeps watch over His conditional promise. You see, in the covenant of grace, there is always both. There's something that God promises to do no matter what His people do. That's unconditional. And then there's something God promises to do depending on how His people respond. For example, if His people respond with faith and love and obedience, then God will bless them with peace and prosperity. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 4. But if His people respond with disobedience and rejection, then God will be angry with them and punish them. This is how covenants work. Covenant blessings follow upon obedience. Covenant curses follow upon disobedience. God spoke the same way to David, to Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here comes the conditional part. When he commits iniquity, so if he falls into sin and transgression, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, here's the 
unconditional part, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. You've got the unconditional right alongside the conditional. That's how God rolls in his covenant. It's totally undeserved. He didn't have to put that unconditional word in there, but he does because that's who he is. He wants to work salvation for his people. And it's the outworking of this conditional promise to discipline the king with the rod of men that we see happening in the rest of chapter 21. God disciplines King Jehoram according to the terms of the covenant. Moses had made a list of the covenant curses back in Deuteronomy 28. And one of the basic curses is the Lord will cause you, the people, to be defeated before your enemies you shall go out one way and flee seven ways before them. And that's what happens in verses 8 through 10. Edom revolts, we read, and also Libna. Edom, that's the descendants of Esau. They had been longtime enemies. They had been under subjection to Jehoshaphat. Suddenly, they rise up and they get the upper hand. And Libna to the west, so Edom's to the southeast. Libna's to the west toward the border with the Philistines, they too revolt. So now you've got battles on two fronts. Jehoram, he tries to go out with his army to put down Edom's rebellion. That's verse 9, and the, the wording is not so very clear there. But basically, he, he goes out to put down the rebellion. Edom surrounds him with his army. He tries to break through and overcome, but in fact, all he can do is escape with just barely his life. So King Jehoram flees back home to Jerusalem, tail between his legs. This is the Lord's doing. Covenant curse, the first covenant curse to hit Jehoram as a form of discipline. That's how it works in the covenant, in God's covenant still today with us. There are blessings and there are curses. There are benefits for faithfulness and let me just hastily add, never earned. It's not given to us as a wage, not something owed, but it's always by grace according to God's promise. So there's benefits for faithfulness. And on the other hand, there are punishments for disobedience. But now these punishments, they always have the positive purpose to turn the hearts of His people turn our hearts away from sin back to God. It's a form of divine purging. I also want to be really clear here that not every form of suffering is automatically a divine punishment. We can think of Job, right? Job was, was punished or, or Job suffered, but it wasn't because he had done something particularly wrong. But what Scripture says, and what I'm trying to get across here, is that when you and I rebel, when we fall into sin and do not repent, then according to the covenant, we can expect God to punish us with suffering. But then the goal of that suffering is always to make us repent, to lead us back to Him. Punishments bring hardship, but the purpose, God's purpose is not to grind us down, but to bring us back to loving Him and being loved by Him, to a relationship of, of peace and harmony with our Maker. So, brothers and sisters, let me 
let me ask you this. Is there a sin in your life? Is there a sin in your life that you are leaving untouched, unrepented, just down low, something you're, you know is there, you indulge it, but you don't repent from it? Is there something you are committed to more than you are committed to God? And this is what you need to do. Own it before the Lord. Confess it. Repent from it. Be rid of it and be forgiven for it in the blood of Christ. Enjoy the free forgiveness that Christ offers. Do not stay in that sin. For the Lord is patient. The Lord is gracious. The Lord wants us to come back to Him. That's why He has Elijah send a letter. Kind of unique, this letter. Elijah, the prophet, who had stood up to wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and also their son Amaziah in the north. This prophet who was famous and revered throughout all Israel, north and south, he sends a letter to Jehoram to make it clear as crystal that his current pathway will only lead to ruin. Elijah lays it out pretty clear in his letter, the sin of murder, the sin of idolatry, and he tells Jehoram that a plague is coming. It's going to strike Jehoram and his household, and Jehoram himself will die from a long and painful disease in his bowels. This is from Elijah. Brothers and sisters, tell me, if Elijah has sent you a letter like that, how would you respond? If you were in Jehoram's shoes and you get this letter from the prophet Elijah, this is no nameless prophet that you'd never heard about. Elijah's track record is virtually spotless. When Elijah speaks, everybody knows the living God speaks. So when the living God, through this letter, expresses fearsome judgment, would you not begin to sweat and, and tremble? Would you not fall on your face in humility and shame and put ashes on your head as the custom was in the day and, and cry out in repentance, seeking the mercy of the Lord? I mean, Elijah has just said horrible things are coming. That's what a letter like that is designed to do. That's what prophecies like that are designed to do. In fact, very much like the imprecatory prayers in some psalms. You know, we have those in the book of Psalms, certain passages that ask God to bring punishment down on the enemy that's attacking David or someone else. Well, when we encounter such prayers like this letter, we have to understand it's not, they're not presenting the final word on the subject. They're not presenting an unchangeable outcome. But rather, such prophecies and such prayers are, you could say, the last-ditch effort of God's prophets or God's people to warn the offender of the great wrath of God that's hanging over their head. These imprecatory prophecies and prayers 
are meant to be as stark as possible, as frightening as possible, in order to invoke repentance in the heart of the person who's offending. The threat is itself a call to repentance. Just think, for example, of Jonah. When Jonah was sent to Nineveh, he walked through the city of Nineveh, and he announced a, a simple prophecy. In 40 days, the Lord will destroy Nineveh. He didn't say if. He just said it's going to happen in 40 days. And, of course, Nineveh repented, and the Lord did not bring his punishment. That's the purpose of the preaching. That's the purpose of the prophecies in those imprecatory prayers. That's the underlying desire in all these passages. And yet, King Jehoram gets this letter from Elijah, and he... There's no sign that he changes course. He ignores Elijah. He hardens his heart, and so the Lord continues to bring his covenant curses. We're told in verse 16 that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians to more enemies, so another military attack against the nation. And the result is that all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and all of his sons and his wives are carried away by the invaders. Do you see the tragic irony? Jehoram had started out his kingship thinking that he would make his kingdom strong by killing off all his brothers and all his royal competitors, but in the end, God does the same to him. Just like we read in Proverbs, if you try to lay a trap for someone, you will fall into that trap yourself. His children are dragged off. His wives are dragged off into captivity, never to be seen again. Jehoram's kingdom has become weak. His line is threatened. And Jehoram himself is cursed by God with a bodily ailment so severe, it's hard to even read about that, isn't it? Sickness is also a covenant curse for rebellion, mentioned in Deuteronomy 28 several times. After a, a very short kingship of only eight years, Jehoram dies in great agony with his bowels spilled out on the ground. The, the humiliation, the suffering, the misery of that is hard to describe. And yet maybe even worse than that is how the people respond. Verse 20, this is the people he, he was supposed to shepherd. And he departed to no one's regret. Isn't that brutal? He departed to no one's regret. Nobody missed him. You know, we've, we've heard many people in our extended families dying these last weeks. There was a funeral in this building only a few days ago. And in every case, those people were loved. Those people are missed. But nobody will miss the evil King Jehoram. Good riddance, say the people. How tragic. This is a son of David. Jehoram's wicked reign is a warning to us. Repent today while you have a chance. And then repent every day 
and give your heart completely to God. That's the conditional side of the covenant, our obligation. But then notice also the unconditional side coming to light in verse 17. Though all the sons of Jehoram were captured and exiled, we read this, no son was left to Jehoram except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. There's the lamp. You see that? The lamp in the house of David is still burning. The line continues. There's the covenant mercy of the Lord opening a door of hope for the coming of the Christ who absolutely will and in fact since then has brought salvation from sin itself once and for all for you, for me, for all God's people. Hallelujah! If only we repent and believe in the great son of David, we too share in that salvation. You know where King Jesus is right now? He's on David's throne in heaven at the right hand of his father. He's ruling over the new Israel of which we are a part. And what King Jehoram failed to do in every respect, King Jesus is doing completely and perfectly. He's shepherding God's people away from rebellion into loving obedience of their God, into eternal fellowship and grace with their God. And King Jesus says to us, to you and me, follow me, and I will take you there to your God. So, beloved, let each of us say, yes, Lord, I will follow. Amen. Mm -hmm.